0: Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship through your word this morning, Father. The chance to, to hear you through your words and to understand it truly. And just the reminder of Yom Kippur coming up, Father, and of the Feast of Trumpets having just passed. Uh, all of these things, Father, draw our attention to the fact that you've been at work centuries ago, millennia ago, in preparing all that you plan to do and in showing us what it entails, Revealing it through the prophets to Israel, putting it in your word and then through the New Testament, Father, through the, the revelation of Christ, we've come to see them all in a new and better way. Truly your work. We thank you, Lord, that we can have these insights because they draw us to you and they explain your purposes and they open up our lives, Father, to serve you in a new and better way. And that's why you gave us the book of Hebrews, too. A book written long ago for a perspective that may not be the one we have coming in. Father, a Jewish perspective, but at the same time, Lord, the, the things that that church wrestled with, that those people had to deal with in coming to grips with the new covenant. Father, these are some of the same things we deal with from a different point of view. And in your wisdom, Lord, you gave them instruction that we now benefit from. And I ask, Lord, that you'd walk us through it. Through your spirit in each of us, you'd show us the truth, helping us to understand it, Father. And use me, Father, as it it pleases you to accomplish that goal. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hebrews chapter 5, that's where we are this morning. And with it, we begin another proof of Jesus' superiority. This is the topic of the priesthood. This is where we start now. And it... We'll focus on Jesus as our high priest. Last week when we ended chapter 4, the writer was making this transition into this, this topic, and he began by introducing Jesus as our new and better high priest. That's where we were last week. He mentioned things like sympathy, that Christ could be a sympathetic high priest given his humanity. And he mentioned the fact that Jesus could intercede for us in a better way because he's perpetually in a position to do that. Always close to the father, always on duty. Things that you could not see with the high priest of Israel in days past. And so at this point into chapter five, the writer is preparing to launch into an extended discussion on Christ as our high priest, our better high priest. And that discussion will go all the way from chapter five into chapter seven. Now, I'm going to make an assumption at this point or a guess that perhaps some, if not all of you, are thinking Well, the topic of proving to me that Jesus is a better high priest is not one I'm particularly interested in because you're saying to yourself, I really don't need convincing on this point. I haven't ever been subject to a high priest under the law. That's not something I grew up with. And so you don't have to work too hard to convince me that I need Christ as my high priest instead of an Aaronic high priest. I'm already there with you, Steve. What good is this going to be for me? Well, if you're thinking that way, it's certainly understandable, given what I just said. But it's also wrong, as you might have thought I would tell you. And here's why. The writer's going to work to explain this in a way that's very challenging and very eye-opening. Concepts that are new, even for you and I. Things that are going to open your mind concerning how God has been working throughout the course of history to prepare our high priest. In fact, you're going to find that Christ's work as high priest, in fact, God's work to bring him into his high priestly position, Began in chapter three of Genesis. It's something that goes far deeper into the scriptures than you might have imagined. In fact, this writer's audience, the one he was writing to in his day, it was unprepared for all of the depth of what he's going to argue and the magnitude of this revelation, which is why in his discourse on the priesthood, he has to go through three chapters to get it all done. And one of those chapters, chapter six, is actually a sidebar. It's not directly on the conversation of the high priest. It is a sidebar in which he chastises the church for making it so hard for him to explain these deep matters to them. And at the end of this chapter, as we get out of chapter 5 and get into 6, when he suspends his discussion on the priesthood, we reach the third warning in this letter. You remember I've mentioned on several occasions now the letter is noted for its five major warnings. And each of these warnings are mile markers in the letter. They show us that we've reached another high point. In fact, in chapter 6, you find all of that chapter devoted To the third warning, to the fact that the audience for this letter was not able to see some of these important truths about Melchizedek without the writer having to go to an inordinate effort to explain it properly to them. Why? Because they've overlooked some important aspects of God's work going back to the creation and they have become rather lazy, he's going to call them, in their study of scripture. And as a result, he has to work a little harder than he should to explain it. We'll get to that warning next week. But today we're going to examine as he begins talking about the priesthood of Christ in chapter five. He's going to begin his discussion. We're going to examine that with him and we'll end with his introduction to the third warning. So let's begin in chapter five. We'll read verses one through four to open up this new topic. Verse one, he says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So the writer begins here to explain, essentially, the job requirements for someone to be a high priest in Israel. And he begins with that term for every high priest. In other words, for any man who would be called a high priest in Israel, here are your qualifications, among others. First, before we go into the specific qualifications, I want you to get a little background on the role of a priest or of priests, particularly in Israel. But in general, in Hebrew, the word is kohen. You may not recognize that name. There are still those today who bear the name Cohen within Jewish families. It can be literally translated chief minister, chief minister, or as in chief servant of God. Many Jews who descend from the tribe of Levi continue to carry the name Cohen today, which is reflective of their priestly family origins. The only tribe of the twelve, thirteen technically, in Israel who you can still identify today in the culture of Israel, is the tribe of Levi, because they're the only tribe that carried their priestly order in their last name. So Cohen, Cohn, Levi, liebenstein I mean, any of those names reflect the fact that they came out of the tribe of Levi. It's the only tribe that can still be identified in that way. But back to the purpose of a priest. The general purpose of a priest is to be a representative of God to men and of men before God. They intercede before God on the behalf of needful men and they represent God's holiness to sinful men. Now, within Israel, there were men who were designated as priests based on their family origins and based on the fact that they would then be consecrated through a formal method to become priests. And once they had become priests within Israel, they then served Israel in the tabernacle. That was their job. But among the families of priests that existed in Israel, there was one man at all times in Israel who held a special position among those priests. We called him the high priest. He was considered the chief representative of God before men, And his primary duty was to officiate over a one time a year moment in which an atonement took place inside the tabernacle or temple. That was really his one special moment every year. The writer goes on to reminding us, that this covenant will also stipulate the requirements for who can be a priest and who can be the high priest. For example, in Israel, the high priest, it says, had to be one taken from among men if he is to be a representative for the men that he serves. Well, this is a simple concept, but it's very important. To represent a group to God, you have to be a part of the group that you represent. We do this in other contexts today. For example, if you want to represent America at the Olympics, you have to be an American. Makes sense, right? If you want to represent your state in Congress, then you have to be a citizen of that state. And if you're wanting to represent a school at a spelling bee, you have to go to that school and on and on and on. Right. We understand that concept. Well, so it is with priests before God, whose job it is to to represent men to God. If you want to be a priest. You've got to be a man. And when I say a man, it's true that it's limited to males, but it's bigger than that. The concept here is of mankind. A priest must be a man. A priest cannot be an angel. A priest cannot be a spirit. A priest cannot be an entity other than a human being if their job is to represent human beings before God. So as the writer here is reminding us or explaining to us the requirements of priesthood, he mentions first you have to be. Capable of representing the group you're supposed to represent. You have to be one of them. Secondly, he says the high priest must offer sacrifices and gifts. Under the law, Israel could not worship God except in the way God prescribed in his own law, in his covenant. And he prescribed that their worship must come through the means of priests. A priest had to perform the sacrifice. A priest had to take the blood into the tabernacle. A high priest had to take it into the Holy of Holies. You were not able to worship God without that priest. He was your means to God under the law. The acts of worship will be acceptable to God only because God himself has recognized the office of priest and the function of high priest, and that representation had power And it had authority before God only because it was in accordance with what God said he would accept. God sets the rules for how men may approach him. And when we follow his rules, he receives our worship. When we don't follow his rules, he doesn't receive it. And so it was under the law. I can give you another example to help you understand what the writer is saying. When you hire an attorney to represent you in a court of law, that attorney has authority to conduct your affairs on your behalf only because the judge and the court acknowledges the attorney's right to represent you. If your representative is not a licensed attorney or if he hasn't been accepted into the Bar Association, then he's not gonna be acknowledged by the court as a legitimate representative. you can appoint him all you want. You can let him go in your place all you want, but it's not gonna have any effect as far as the court is concerned because they won't recognize that person as your legal lawful representative. In a similar way, if you try to send someone to Washington, D.C. to represent you in the House of Representatives, but they have not been duly elected according to the laws of the state, they will not be received by the Congress. Congress will not let that person through the doors, much less to have them speak on the floor or vote on your behalf. You can send them all you want, but you'll get no benefit if the person you're sending does not qualify according to the rules of the ones that are receiving him. And so it is with God. With a high priest, you cannot worship God through their mediation, through their agency, unless they are the one that God will recognize. And he will only recognize them if they are according to the covenant or to the rules he has stipulated for their office. So if you you want God to receive your worship and to hear your petitions and to grant your forgiveness for sin, then you have to approach him on his terms, which means you have to come through a high priest he has qualified. Now, that's the background for high priest roles Verses two and three. Now, the writer explains the wisdom of God in stipulating these requirements. And he uses the Aaronic priesthood, which is the priesthood established in the law given through Moses. He uses that as his example in showing the wisdom. The writer says that because a high priest is himself a man, he comes with this valuable perspective into his role as he represents the needs of sinful people. He can deal with us. Gently. But look how the writer of Hebrews describes those that a high priest represents. He calls us ignorant and misguided. But those words have a very specific meaning. The word ignorant, for example, in this case, these are not insults, by the way. They're literal. Many within the people of God are ignorant in the literal sense of the word. Or in Greek, it literally means without knowledge. They lack knowledge of God. The high priest was schooled in the ways of God. He knew the word of God. He had experiences in serving God that gave him a degree of knowledge and wisdom that was not common within the people. It distinguished him from the people and it made him the one that God received and it let him serve in that way through a knowledge that the people did not have. Furthermore, it says people could be misguided in Greek. The word for misguided means literally to wander. If you read this in the Greek, it says the people wandered literally as in to wander from the truth or to wander into deception And so the high priest acted as a shepherd, if you will. The people of God being deceived by the world or by their flesh or by the enemy. The high priest could be that one who, through his knowledge and his closeness to God, could be the shepherd to bring the wandering back into the fold through discipline, through feeding, through encouragement, whatever he could do. And best of all, the writer says the high priest of Israel was well equipped to serve because since he was a man, he himself was beset by similar weaknesses. His personal experience with dealing with his own sin gave him a compassion and a capacity for sympathy when he was dealing with others who have sin. He can put himself in other people's shoes, so to speak. He was neither to be indifferent to sin, but nor was he to be harsh with those who fell. Ideally, that's what a high priest would bring to the job. In fact, the writer says, just to make sure this guy always remembered his place, there was the requirement in the law that before he could approach God on your behalf or my behalf, if we were Israel, He first had to sacrifice for his own sin. What a clear reminder for him that you're no better than the people. Not in this regard. Not in the case of your sinfulness. And so that was the role of the high priest. That was how he was prepared, how he was selective, and how he was to remain humble. Now, while we wait to go further in the letter for a minute, let's take a second to understand where we stand today. Since we are not Israel, we are not under the law. We are in a different covenant. We don't meet God through an earthly priest. Some of you may have had experiences... Like I've had in my own life growing up as a Catholic in a family that was Catholic. And in our particular family, you know, having that background, we were always sent to a church that had, quote, a priest. And that person was set apart from the rest of the congregation. They wore clothes that told you they were set apart. They were the one you had to go to to confess your sin. And they were the ones who could designate you into the sacraments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They were clearly the one guy in the tradition of Catholicism, they were clearly the one guy that everything had to go through and be done by, otherwise you had no hope to reach God. Now, in one sense, they're doing it the right way. They're actually honoring the word priest properly, in that that's what priests are, in fact, for. They are the way to God. They are the intercessor. They do have that power. That is how God uses the term priest. That is what the word means. So in that sense, at least they're consistent to the word. The problem is, it's completely bad theology, that We don't have a priest in human form walking on earth any longer that we work through to reach God. The idea that I put on a collar and call myself a priest somehow makes me one is is bizarre. It's completely wrong. It's unbiblical. It'd be like me putting on a skirt and calling myself a Girl Scout. It doesn't make me one just because I adopt the name and even some of the dress doesn't create the spiritual outcome. At best, at best, those men might be pastors, assuming they're doing their job properly and they know the Lord. But they're certainly not priests. The term is no longer the appropriate term. For if we're using it in a biblically appropriate way, we're implying that God meets us through that person and that we appeal to God through their intercession. And friends, that is not how we approach God anymore. And you know that from other teaching we've done, certainly. But yet priests do still exist in the world today. Where do I go to find priests Today, in in keeping with the definition of the word, the proper use of it, biblically speaking, who are those today who intercede on behalf of those who are far from God and who represent God to the people? What priesthood exists on earth today? Well, look to your left. Look to your right. Welcome to the priesthood. We are all priests, according to Scripture. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, who place their faith in Christ, are the priesthood of this world today. We are the priests of God men and women. What that means in keeping with the term of priest is that we represent to the unbelieving world the truth about God. We are those who bring God to the people, just as priests did in the day of the law. And as those people come to seek God in the world, there is no temple, physically speaking. There's no building. There's no Shekinah glory sitting on a mercy seat somewhere where they can go and visit God. How does someone who wants to know the true and living God find him in the world today? Who do they talk to? Where do they go? And the answer, of course, is to the body of Christ, to the believers. We are that person, that priest to represent God to them and to introduce them. So the priesthood of the believers, a very real institution and exists through your life and mine today as we function in the world. But we are not individually helping others within the body reach God. We are all accessing through the high priest that we have in heaven. Now, we're going to come back to the discussion of Christ Serving as our high priest in heaven, and what that means as the writer does through the rest of this chapter and into chapter 6 and 7. So we'll hold off a little bit on that. But I want to make one other comparison to today, one that I think is worth making in passing, and that is to the issue of pastoral leadership in the church. For I know it's common for us to begin to conflate priests and pastors. Certainly the Catholic Church has done that. But even within the Protestant tradition, to those who have an orthodox view of Scripture, And of Christianity, we sometimes, I think, can fall into the same trap of thinking of pastoral leadership in any context as a substitute for priests today. And that's not true. First of all, I just pointed out we're all priests in the literal sense. But secondly, your leader in in any context, whether it's a Bible study leader, a home group leader, a woman's leader, a men's leader, a pastor in any context, an elder, we have particular roles and we have a function in the body that's valuable and it's called out in Scripture. But none of those things make us a priest or your representative for God. Neither are we your conduit to God. That's not the role. And yet we should share some of the same qualities as priests had in Israel. For example, I don't think it's stretching the comparison to say that we should uh, see uh, effective leaders in ministry would see the same kind of compassionate side that the priests of Israel were expected to have, that we look upon the believers in the body and recognize that when you are sometimes ignorant of Scripture or when you are sometimes misguided in what you do or when I am ignorant or when I am misguided, that that's an opportunity for a leader in the church to step in with compassion, knowing that we've all been there ourselves at some point and still are in many ways. with a compassionate mindset, we can be of assistance. Not with arrogance, not with a high and mighty attitude, not with piousness, but with an awareness that we all have similar problems, similar challenges, and yet we all have a call to do better. So a leader can't be the kind of person who exhibits this sense of entitlement or of power that's spiritually inherited beyond what is available to the average believer. We can't act with Impunity, you know, and I know, we've seen people like that in churches, different places. We can't have that. That's not the biblical mindset. But neither can the leader in any context give comfort to the enemy. Our chief enemy is sin. You don't want leaders who excuse it away because they want to be compassionate. So we want leaders who serve our interests in the truth. They encourage us to become better followers of Christ. They have sympathy for our wanderings and they will make sacrifices on our behalf, just as the priest did in Israel. But that's the extent of the comparison. All right, now the writer has explained the basic qualifications and why it's wise to have these qualifications. He now moves to explaining why Jesus was a superior high priest. Now, this begins the more difficult part of his teaching, which he suspends almost immediately as he begins it. Look where he goes first, verses 5 through 7. He says, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Just as he also, in another passage, said, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Verse 10, he said, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So there was the high priest of Israel and how he received what he had and what qualified him. Let's look at how Christ did the same. As with priests under the law, God the Father appointed and approved Christ as our high priest. Think back for a minute to how a man would become a high priest under the law. He couldn't appoint himself. Priests were appointed by God, and he said they had to come from the tribe of Levi, descended from Aaron. Priests were appointed only on those terms. That's why we call the priesthood under the law the Aaronic priesthood, because they all had to come from Aaron. And the high priest was likewise always to be a descendant of Aaron himself, usually the eldest son. So you could not be a high priest unless you were the direct descendant of Aaron. God set those qualifications. And those are the only ones that he would accept. Likewise, the writer says the son had to meet qualifications set by the father. Just as God appointed Aaron, so the father has to also appoint his son, Christ, as my high priest, if he meets certain terms. The writer returns to Psalms to prove his argument. He uses Psalms 2 here. Psalm 2, 7, I will tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, how does this prove his point? How does that phrase, that little simple statement, prove one of the aspects of Jesus's qualification? Well, the answer comes in understanding the the meaning of the word begotten. You know that word best from John 3.16? That word in Hebrew, in this case, is here in Hebrew, in Psalms. It means to come forth, but it carries another meaning, another sense, particularly in ancient Israel, one that's evident as far back as Genesis. The word, in fact, is used throughout Genesis. To reflect genealogical qualifications. That is of a son coming to continue a family name. You'll see that word over and over again in the genealogy chapters of Genesis. For example, it's translated in most of those became the father of. And so blank became the father of blank and blank became the father of blank. That word in Hebrew is begotten. What the writer is highlighting by using Psalm 2 is. Both aspects of Christ's qualification as high priest. First, that he took on human flesh and was born into the form of man. God, it says, became the father of Christ, calling him son because he was begotten of the father. And that is going with the concept of representation again. If Christ is going to be your representative before the father, he has to be of you, of your kind, of mankind. Just as the sons of Aaron were the only ones who were qualified to be priests, Christ had to be a son of the proper family. And the family that could represent us was the family that God appointed. And he begot Christ, brought him into existence as a man to make sure that he was a part of that family. But that raises the second point of succession. The word order, when the writer in verse 6 says he was of the order of Melchizedek, the word order, it literally means succession. If you've heard of the order of Melchizedek and you've said to yourself, oh, that's like a a monastic order, like a club, like a group of monks, then you have completely missed what he's saying. It's not saying he is of an order called Melchizedek. It is saying he is descended. He is the successor to the Melchizedek priesthood. Remember how priests work, particularly high priests. How long do you serve as high priest for life? How does the new high priest come into existence? Only upon the death of the earlier high priest. And when the earlier high priest dies, who becomes the next high priest? Well, by succession, by order, it is the eldest son of the existing high priest. That was how it is to be. That's how it was to be under the Aaronic priesthood in Israel. It was always intended by God to be an inherited succession. So the writer of Hebrews says Jesus did not assume for himself this title of priest. He couldn't. It wouldn't have been valid. It would have been like you saying, I'm now the representative for Austin in the state legislature. And you walk down to the Capitol building and you show up and you say, I declare myself to be the representative. People look at you like you're crazy. Well, friends, Christ could not show up and say, I'm going to be a high priest just because he had to qualify. One of the qualifications, he had to be a son. He had to be born. He had to be a man. The second one, though, is he had to be born into the correct family line in such a way that he would be the natural one to inherit the order of Melchizedek upon the death of the earlier office holder, the earlier priest of Melchizedek, whoever that was. This succession of priests we call the order of Melchizedek. But Christ, never dying again, never gives up his priesthood. That's why he is forever the priest. In the order of Melchizedek, as we'll learn in chapter seven, because there is no one after him. And the writer begins to compare the work of Christ as our high priest in this order to the work of high priests before in the Aaronic order. He says in the days of Jesus' flesh, which is a way of saying in the time when he lived as a man on earth prior to his ascension, he offered up both prayers and supplications. The writer is referring specifically to Jesus's priestly prayer in John chapter 17. You know, the one that was a key moment in his ministry. It's when he was interceding on behalf of the weaknesses of those who are ignorant and misguided. That is you and I. And he approached the father, the one it says who was able to save him from death. I you think about that for a minute. It doesn't make sense because he did die. Well, except that that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to the fact that he was resurrected that the father resurrected the son and his death on the cross was not the end of him. So the writer says the father was able to save him from death, meaning resurrect him. And his petitions were heard by the father because of his piety, which means his reverence. So what he's saying is Jesus reverence in doing all that God required him to do as a high priest, made him a suitable representative, one God would accept. And we see God's acceptance or his approval of that man as our high priest in the fact that he brought him back to life, that he resurrected him from death, leaving him essentially in the role of high priest forever. Now this gets to the issue of succession. If God was not fully pleased with Christ as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, he would not have resurrected him. That's the logic of the argument that that the writer is making. The resurrection of Christ brought him into a position where he could never die again, and as such will serve perpetually in the role of high priest. He is perfected in that role. His piety, his reverence, has made him worthy of this role forever. And then lastly, in verses 8 through 10, the writer emphasizes the value of his suffering as our high priest. Even though he was sinless and divine, he still gained from suffering. Because in becoming incarnate, in understanding what it means to suffer and to be tempted, Christ learned obedience. How does a perfect divine man need to learn obedience? Well, we must presume Christ never had a situation prior to being incarnate in which disobedience to the Father was ever a viable option. They were one together. They were in a form that had existed from eternity. There was no divergence between them, and and that was not possible, or so it would seem. But now that he faces a horrible death in the form of man, in the flesh, with all the emotion that comes with it, he now is certainly tempted. And we know the scripture said he was tempted to run away, to avoid The death on the cross. There's Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Father, If it be your will, take this cup from me. That's Him saying, I don't want to die if I don't have to. Can we rethink the plan? And of course, the Father's will would be done. So He was tempted. But he never sinned. He never turned his back on the plan. He never disobeyed the father. The suffering of Christ was in knowing what was coming and going forward with it voluntarily. And that experience taught him obedience in a way that he never could have known if he had not had that experiential form of it. That's what the writer is referring to. And I've said this myself in other contexts when we talk about submission to authority, whether it's to governing authorities or to family authorities or to church authorities. Friends, if you've never been asked to do something you don't want to do, then you have never truly experienced submission. Doing what someone else wants you to do, if it's what you already wanted, is not submission. It's called agreement. Only if you're being asked to do something you don't want to do, and then you do it. That's submission. And Jesus had, for the first time in eternity... An opportunity to do something other than what the father wanted, but agreed to do it nonetheless, despite strong temptation to the contrary. That's proof of obedience. That's what the writer means when he says he learned obedience through his suffering. And the writer says by that he was made perfect. The word perfect here in the Greek tell you it literally means to bring to a perfect conclusion. The writer saying Jesus suffered And as such, his mission as high priest was brought to its perfect conclusion in that he could finally understand what the weaknesses of men were, what the challenges were. He could overcome those challenges. He could then be counted worthy by the father to be our eternal high priest, having succeeded in all that he was given and resurrected as evidence of that approval. And in that, the plan of God was completed. You see that same word used elsewhere in the Gospels in John. John 4:34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Same word in the Greek, accomplish. John 19, 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine on the cross, he said, It is finished. Did you know the word finished there is completed, accomplished. So Christ is the high priest. who can make a sacrifice on our behalf, which the Father will regard as salvation for our sake. He came in a manner prescribed, the only begotten Son, He met all the qualifications as a man, including demonstrating obedience to God and compassion for his fellow man, and he came in the succession or the order of Melchizedek. Now, that last detail is the one that is ultimately most important. It qualifies Christ as the promised Messiah. It tells us that God's promise of a Redeemer and King is now fulfilled in the one who came, Christ Himself. The order of Melchizedek is the issue. That's where this writer finds himself now in his own discussion for the sake of his readers. You're probably not very familiar with the significance of the order of Melchizedek. Perhaps you've never even heard of the order before. Perhaps you only barely remember the name from that one experience that Abraham has in Genesis. Or perhaps in the psalm that mentions him. Well, this is understandable to some extent. After all, we're Gentiles. Perhaps we haven't studied this the way some Jews would have. But it's still an important topic, certainly for us as well. And the writer at this point. Reaches the conclusion that, you know, I'd love to go a little further with this and I will, but I have a suspicion. Now, if you remember, he's writing, he's not talking to them live. So he must have had some reason to suspect something as he's writing. So he reaches this point where he decides he has to pause. He has more to say about this guy and about the order and about why it's important. But if he were to go any further without a little correction, he's not sure they'd be listening very carefully. So look at verse 11. This is the last verse we cover today. It sets up the warning for next week. Verse 11, it says concerning him, which we know he's referring to Melchizedek concerning him. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Concerning Melchizedek, and I think he also means Christ concerning Christ as Melchizedek, the writer says we have much to say. We're not sure who the we is here. You notice that we have much to say. He could be referencing a group of apostles that he's working with, speaking on behalf of. Or maybe it's the situation we mentioned earlier where someone is writing a letter on behalf of an apostle. And so it's a teaming effort. But either way, this writer and this group, whoever it is, has a message intended for this church on the topic of Melchizedek. But he feels inhibited from delivering it because of two challenges. There's two challenges here. First, the truth of the matter of Melchizedek, he says, is hard to explain. The Greek word for hard to explain really doesn't mean hard to explain. I'm not sure why it's been translated that way in English. The literal Greek means it's easy to misjudge. It's easy to misinterpret. This writer is not concerned that he can't explain it. He's prepared to explain it. He understands it very well. He's not going to have trouble explaining it. It's not hard to explain. Not for him. What's hard is for his audience to follow it. It's easy for someone to misunderstand what he's saying. And that's his concern. This is not the kind of truth that you just lay out in front of somebody and walk away from and expect them to grasp fully. The nature of this complex truth makes it very susceptible to be misunderstood or to be misinterpreted on the part of the audience. So you've dealt with issues like this, I'm sure, right? There's things that are really hard to explain to somebody. And you know that if you don't take your way through it carefully, they're not going to get what you're saying. Well, that's this guy's concern. That is the first problem. But the second problem is even bigger. And the second problem is that his audience is apparently ripe for misunderstanding. They are apparently likely to misunderstand. He uses an interesting term here to describe their shortcoming. He says they are dull of hearing. The word for dull is nathros in the Greek, and it literally means lazy. That's why I used the term earlier. They're lazy. They're sluggish of hearing. These Christians were lazy in hearing. And in appreciating the truths of the word. Now, the writer is not saying that they are slow to learn. He's not saying they're mentally incapable of understanding. He's not saying they're dumb. He's not talking about their capacity. He's talking about how they've applied themselves. He says they are not interested in paying close attention, in expending the mental effort that's going to be required to work through the issues regarding a discussion of Melchizedek. And friends, I know how it feels. I mean, I know how it feels in the sense that I know how it feels to be taught and your mind's just not in it. Maybe your heart's just not in it. Maybe it just doesn't feel like something for you. I get that. We all know what that's like. You've had it and experienced it here on Sundays, maybe even this morning. You'll have it other times from other people. I'll get it from other times from other people. That's natural. The problem is the fact that it's natural doesn't mean it's excusable. In other words, there's a benefit to applying ourselves to understanding the truths of Scripture. Anytime we do it, every time we get the opportunity. There's also a loss anytime we pass up that opportunity. We may not understand the the importance of that loss. It may not even dawn on us for years what we lack. In fact, we may never connect the dots, but there's always a loss. It reminds us, this writer's warning will remind us, that learning God's Word is not a passive activity. Not for the teacher, nor for the student. It requires effort. It requires work, but friends, it's worth it because there's a powerful reward, an eternal reward, potentially, in applying ourselves to that process. If you don't focus on that work, you naturally, according to scripture, fall backward into a lazy Christian walk, one that regresses over time, such that even what you have is lost over time. And the writer's concern here over this church, having become lazy and complacent and unwilling to do the hard work of learning scripture, has left him now with a challenge that he prefers not to have. And it leads into this next warning, which we'll do next week in chapter six as it comes out of chapter five. We'll take a close look at the audience's problem and the warning that he issues it. And in the course of looking at that warning, we're going to settle, I hope, one of the common disputes that's, that's found when people study this letter, and that is the eternal security of the believer. And what is the prospect of somebody becoming a Christian on one day and somehow losing that salvation in another day? Is such a thing possible? Is the writer speaking in those terms here or not? That's often a, a conversation that comes up out of chapter six. We'll look at that as well. For now, I want us to understand that I've only done what the writer has done. I've introduced the idea that there's something desperately important about Christ in a new order and about where this order came from and how he inherited it. But we don't have the answers yet on those details. We'll get that in chapter seven. First, like the readers of that day, we need a little chastisement from the writer, not me, on why it's important to be more attentive in our listening. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll do that next week. I'm sure you're all really looking forward to next week right now. Circling that date on your calendar, coming back for some good old fashioned chastisement out of Scripture. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for difficult concepts and for the fact that you inspired men to take time to explain them to us carefully. And Lord, forgive us for those days when we may feel lazy in our hearing, we would be complacent in our efforts to study. Give us a heart, Father, to return to you in a stronger way so that we might learn the things you've called us to learn. Trusting, Father, that as we apply ourselves, you will find a way to turn us back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.